Welcome to what CEOs want to know, short conversations that can make a lasting difference to your business. My name is Linda Ruland, founder of SuccessAuthorities.com and the producer of this podcast series. If you think culture isn't something that should occupy your priority list, think again. In this interview, Success Authority Ron Lehman shines a light on culture and how it can make a powerful difference in propelling your success as well as ensuring you against disruptive change. Cultures, when left unattended, um, are subject to a lot of different forces. Um, every time you bring a new person in, there's the potential that the culture will change. Now, it takes a while um, to one person can't usually change a very entrenched culture. Um, but if you get enough new people or enough people doing different things or enough changes in the environment, um, the competitive environment, all those things can start to um, change a culture. And I, I guess the biggest thing is if uh, the leaders and everyone really is not paying attention to the culture and making sure that they're intentional, that they have the culture they want, um, then it will just sort of decay. Um, or they will end up with a culture that no longer suits their strategy and goals in the environment that they want to do. So typically, they break down slowly and almost imperceptibly. And um, one day people wake up and they go, boy, remember how it used to be? And nobody can put their finger on the day it changed or say, yeah, this on September 1st is when we decided to have a different culture. It, it doesn't usually work that way. And it usually takes a new person looking at something and going, why do we do that? Or why is this the norm? Um, and then people will either say, cause that's the way we've always done it. And, you know, be quiet or, people will go, well, that's a good question. And so intentionality, I think, is the key to avoiding all that. Okay. So when it comes to attending to a culture or, you know, maintaining or sustaining a culture that you prefer to exist in, can you by any chance give me a, an example of what that looks or sounds like versus what happens when it breaks down. You said it's almost imperceptible, but what does this inattentiveness um, equate to? Okay. The inattentiveness really comes in in accepting uh, at face value the notion that, well, we have the culture that we have. And, you know, and nobody's really sure how it started. It might have been intentional at one time, but this is the way we do things around here. I always think of culture as just how we show up and how we interact with each other and how we go to market and how we deal with customers and how we go about our jobs. And almost always the real indicators of culture are not as much what's written down as rules, but really how people learn how to behave within the culture. And so the inattentiveness really becomes is, as I said, over time, we just take that as a given, this is our culture, and nobody pays that much attention to it. Um, we're busy with strategy and goals and business and responding to change and doing all these things. But 
I would always argue that culture is a huge part of that. And, and it can be a competitive advantage for your company or a disadvantage. Um, how you interact with each other and customers indicates, are you going to be able to attract and retain the right people? Are you going to be, uh, get loyal long-term customers? Um, and so often these days, as things get commoditized, uh, even services, a lot of companies uh, fool themselves into thinking they're, ex they're unique and they have something no one else has. And they, they may, but it won't last that long. The distinguishing factor, though, is culture because it's very difficult to replicate culture because it's made up of all the individuals in the organization agreeing um, either consciously or unconsciously to go along with those values and, and the unwritten rules. And an example of this is um, I've been in organizations where um, the meeting rules, that if you showed up five minutes before a meeting, you were 10 minutes late. Everyone showed up for a meeting at 15 minutes. Now, that was not written down anywhere. It was just on your first day, you learned <laughs> this is what time the meeting starts. It's 15 minutes before the number. I've been in other organizations where you showed up when you showed up. And if you were there at on time, you were sitting by yourself for quite a while. Now, neither one of those is good or bad. It's just the way things were. Where I think culture becomes important is, is that serving us well in terms of our strategy and our goals and who we want to be? Um, if it is, then, you know, that's just fine. Do events like COVID break down cultures? Are they subject to things that are out of our control? Or is culture impervious to outside conditions? No, um, uh, no, they're not impervious. Um, and when something like COVID happens or any, you know, major change in the marketplace or, you know, new competitors or whatever it is, any kind of change, um, the culture is under threat. And uh, if you have a strong and a culture that you pay attention to and know what's strong about it, know that you're um, being very intentional about what your culture is, you can withstand those forces. And in fact, uh, culture becomes one of the ways that you deal with that. So let's use COVID as an example. If your culture is one that says, um, you know, everybody's ideas are valued and, um, and we really value the input of the employees and what everyone's doing, when COVID hits, People are now working at home. Everything's being disrupted. But if the values stay the same and we value people and we want their input and we just have to figure out a different way to do it, we used to do it in face-to-face -face meetings. Well, now we have to do it a different way. But the value of that doesn't change, that it's important to us and we're going to make sure we do it. Um, I know one organization that I work with, um, they have a very strong value of always trying to demonstrate that the employees are important. And so when COVID hit, they made a commitment to keep everybody working. Um, to, and they were a, an essential industry, so they could stay open. But they did it within very strict COVID guidelines. And But they said, we're, our job is to keep everybody working. They have a paycheck, but we want to keep them safe, just as they want to keep them safe in their normal activities. 
So uh, they made sure that they did everything they could to protect them against COVID. But they also said, if you're sick, uh, go home and self-isolate. Don't worry about your job. You're going to get paid um, whether you're here or not. Don't feel you have to be a hero. Don't feel you have to come to work to, you know, because you need the job. You'll have it. And they didn't lay anybody off. They kept everybody working. And the other thing that they demonstrated was in a time of crisis, the value of uh, we care about the people um, extended to their families. And they offered vaccinations for anyone who wanted them, including their families. They wanted to, uh, they brought their families in to talk about what they were doing. Um, so they did everything they could to support people both at work and after work. And they came through uh, COVID with, first of all, very few cases, but with a, a, um, an increased sense of loyalty from the customers who said they looked around and saw people they knew working for other organizations that basically felt abandoned during this. And they said, you know what, we're going to double down. And so uh, the loyalty goes both ways. Um, that was an example to me of where their culture really um, helped them get through this uh, whole situation. Um, on the other hand, there's cultures that all the worst parts of the culture were absolutely shown under a bright spotlight during all this. And I think that's why they're finding a lot of people are choosing to make other, they're not coming back to work. They're finding other things to do. And I think there may be a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is culture. I think people will um, sometimes choose a culture that, that fits better for them. And if your culture is one that attracts those kind of people. When people show up and they're working in a culture that they really like, now you've got uh, the real potential to make major gains. So we talked very briefly on the idea that uh, sometimes when people go remote or used to be face-to-face -face and now are remote, what is it that you need to do to develop and sustain that culture in that remote environment? Is it different than what you do in other cases and with us probably seeing more remote employees going forward, do we need to be on the lookout for uh, cultivating our internal communications and culture differently? I'm not sure I would use the word differently. I would say you have to use different methods, but the, the, whatever the cultural cornerstones are, uh, whatever the values are, um, maybe those got communicated or shared or were demonstrated face-to-face, uh, -face, whereas now we have to find a way to do it with Zoom. So I know for, you know, a real uh, one example is they always tried to bring people together as much as they could. Well, with Zoom, that was, or I should say with people working from remote locations, that was difficult. So one of the things they did was they instituted um, sort of electronic happy hours where wherever you were, you could join in and there was no business discussion. It was just connecting with your, uh, the people that you worked with. And they also encouraged people to do that on their own, to set up their own. Um, so it wasn't necessarily, you know, a crowd of 200 people trying to do that, which anybody who sat through one of those on Zoom, it's just chaos. But if you got three or four, um, is it the same as being together? No, but it was, you know, it kept people feeling connected because I think one of the problems of COVID was the isolation people started to feel like they were disconnected. And 
if you were feeling a little bit uneasy about your work or the culture beforehand, when you got isolated, you really kind of lost. Why would I stay connected to this? Um, so they did everything they could to stay, keep people connected. And um, while I believe communication is important all the time, they really, uh, I think, redoubling the efforts to make sure that we're connecting people and saying, here's what's going on and here's what we're doing and here's why, where you're contributing and here's what's important for you to know and, you know, feed into the process. And, you know, soliciting people's ideas is sometimes um, difficult electronically, but it can be done if that's, you know, really a core value. And you say, you know, this is really important. We want people to know that we believe in this. And this is what people come to work here for. Let's find ways to make that happen. I think as we move into the future, I think there are some benefits to um, the hybrid model of sometimes we're in the office and sometimes we're not. Um, there are some industries where people have always been sort of on the road or out here. Um, I think the, the smart leaders will just factor in not just productivity, but also culture into that, how we do these things and how we make sure people still feel part of this enterprise and that they can do their best work. In any given environment, who is the keeper of the culture? Is there some one individual who keeps a thumb on that pulse or is, is that something that uh, is tracked some other way? Um, you know, I think that the, the short answer is no, there isn't any one person. It's all of us. If we're an organization, we're all keepers of the culture because how I decide to show up, how I decide to behave and think about the business um, is part of the culture. Um, now, I think if you're in an organization, sometimes you're unconscious about that you figured out what the rules are and you just show up at the meeting 15 minutes early. Um, you don't remember anyone telling you you had to do that and you don't think about it each time. You just, that becomes the norm, but you still own it by showing up at 15 minutes. Um, that said, everybody also can influence that culture and decide, uh, Hey, I can change this or I want to show up differently. It's challenging and difficult to change a culture. Um, I think the, the, the magic wand of culture change is, uh, I think it often, um, the effort and time it takes is underestimated. Um, it, you know, the charismatic leader will come in and say, nope, we're going to change everything and do things differently. Um, you know, as humans, we all resist change and it's same for any changing of culture. Um, some people are going to lean into it right away and other people aren't. And a, and a whole bunch of people are going to be resistant, not because it isn't a good idea, but just because it's change. And so a charismatic leader can come in and make uh, what appear to be culture changes pretty early on. But the, the, the business community is littered with examples where the charismatic leader came in, it looked like incredible culture changes, left and the culture goes back to the way it was or becomes some other thing. So there's two things um, that, I mean, obviously the leader has to go first. Uh, culture change is very difficult from the ground up. I've seen it done, but not without enlisting the, the leaders. They didn't necessarily start off the culture change, but there was such commitment by a few people at other levels of the organization. 
and working with the leaders to convince them it was a good idea that it, it did change. But most often it comes from leaders and, and the higher, the better. Um, if a new or if a CEO sets the tone of these are going to be our values and role models those values and talks about them and says, and here are the things that we're going to change and here's the reason, and then is very good at transmitting that message and holding his or her direct reports, the next level of leadership to those standards, and then they hold the next level and next level, it cascades through. That's when you get real culture change, but it still doesn't happen overnight. But until you make set clear expectations for the culture and role model it, and then hold people accountable to it. So if someone doesn't follow the new culture, you hold them accountable. Um, then it's usually it's just culture theater. Um, you get a lot of cosmetic changes and you get a lot of rallies and, you know, you get a, a, a storeroom full of signs that talked about the new culture and how we're all changing, but that's all that's left of it. And um, it becomes this too shall pass. We talk a lot about innovation within our group and innovation requires a, a significant amount of trust, experimentation, trial and error. How do you create a culture or how do you know if you have a culture that is tolerant of that kind of exploration? I think there's some, some indicators that, that your culture is ripe for innovation. And there's also some that indicate that innovation is going to be difficult here. One of them is where do the ideas come from for improvement? Are they coming from the same group of people or senior people or one or two people, or are they coming from all over the organization? Um, because I think it's a, it's the more people you've got trying to innovate, the better chance you have of coming up with a good idea. If one or two or three people have to come up with all the good ideas, it's just a numbers game. Um, uh, the great Linus Pauling said, um, the way to come up with great ideas is to come up with a lot of ideas. And you have to have um, a culture where it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to speak up. It's okay to challenge the status quo. Um, Amy Edmondson of Harvard calls it creating a psychologically safe environment that people feel like they can contribute at that level and they're not going to be, um, you know, feel less than or get rejected or anything like that. Now it's very difficult to do that because as soon as new ideas come up, almost always our first reaction is, you know, that won't work or no, because it's different. It's change. So you have to really foster the openness. Part of it is I have to be courageous enough to speak up, but on the other hand, I have to be courageous enough to not react negatively to ideas and to say, let's, let's explore it and let's see. Um, you know, most ideas are not going to be great, but we have to welcome them and try and get as many as we can. So the cultural part of that is, is it safe to speak up? And when people do, do we feel like we embrace those new ideas at least enough to explore them? Um, so that's one real key indicator. Um, that, you know, where are the ideas coming from? Another one is if you hear phrases like, um, well, that's not the way we do things, or, you know, we do it because we've always done it. Those are negative indicators because innovation 
obviously involves change. And if we have a, if you have a culture that's change resistant, either, you know, both individually as an organization, it's like, we don't like to change things. We have a success pattern. We know what works and things have been going along great. Um, that's going to be a problem if you want to innovate. I find it fascinating, the history of business, how many very successful companies end up stumbling when they stop innovating. Um, they get really good and big and successful. And so it becomes, let's just run this machine. We know how to, we built the machine and we forget all the experimentation that it took to get there. And we're going to run the machine. And we, what happens is to a culture is it becomes very insular and we ignore outside influences and things like that. Um, and as a result, companies started off innovative, get successful, and they lock into that success pattern. But there comes a point where you either innovate or you just start to fall off. And the big change, I think, in our environment is that drop-off happens much faster and much steeper than it used to. You could sort of gradually go out of business, but now it's just one day you're on top and the next day you're not. And everybody's inside the culture is going, what happened? It seems to me from what you're describing that culture in a lot of ways, though it may seem nebulous and hard to get your arms around, it's, it's a risk mitigator in, in, to a certain degree. I absolutely agree with that. It is a risk mitigator and it, it's, it's insurance. It's insurance against disruptive change. Um, on the one hand, you want to have a culture that, you know, at least explores change and doesn't react and lock down and say that doesn't apply to us. or that's not happening to resistance, but it also provides you with a bedrock of uh, values that can get you through um, disruptions like COVID, like any business downturns and things like that. Um, and it, uh, depending on the culture that you have, it'll, it gives you some flexibility um, to react and respond. And in the best case, it, a, a culture that helps you be intentional and initiate change is even better because then you're the one innovating. You're the one creating disruption for everybody else. Um, I, a, a client of mine said years ago, and I've never forgotten this, he said, when he was talking about competitors and how they approached those, he said, um, they'll catch on, but they won't catch up. So we're going to innovate. We're going to move quickly and be nimble. And we're not going to worry if they copy us, because by the time they do, we're going to have innovated something else. Look forward to future podcasts featuring authorities on topics vital to the success of your business during these changing times. For more information or to contact us directly, visit us at successauthorities.com.